Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is an Unspoiled Network podcast. This is Spoil Me, covering Golden Hand. Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. A quiet conversation, everything important left unsaid. Charter Stones and Free Magic Talismans, Nicholas Learns About Real Librarians, Retreat from Yellow Sands, and An Unlooked-For Return. In these chapters, Nicholas, as much as I really would have thought that he had a handle on the fact that magic is real by now, seems to still not grasp just how much magic is a thing. And also, this retreat from Yellow Sands is a little bit more upsetting than I expected, considering I don't know Yellow Sands at all. I like the way this was done. Welcome to Spoil Me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you very much to Yama for commissioning this episode. Um, Yeah, this section was really like, I felt about the thing with uh, Nicholas and Lyriel. I varied between being glad that it's clear they're going to wind up together eventually, I assume, but also infuriated at the way the two of them are so kind of clueless about how to behave with one another. And it's funny because Nicholas, it's not like he hasn't had exposure to society, you know. Nicholas is the son of, he's not like a prince, as she says later, but he is the son of a nobleman who's very high up the food chain. And I am sure that there have been women in his life of one kind or another. Maybe he has not particularly been serious about any of them, but he at least has that experience. And so I would have expected him to do a little bit better regarding the way he interacts with Lyriel. But I didn't take into account how awkward Lyriel is and how much that throws him off. Because it's a very different, if you are somebody who is a excellent flirt, which I am, back in my flirting days, I could not be beat. If you are somebody who is really good at flirting, 
It is a really weird experience to flirt with somebody who does not know that's what you're doing or doesn't like know how to do it themselves. And that's sort of like Lyriel, it's clear by the time things like wrap up in this section between the two of them that she likes Nick. Like she she says something at one point about how she wanted to come and help him and she didn't mean to. And that wasn't like a, that was an, a great example of the opportunity for a flirtation. Were she that kind of person? But instead she just says very literally and bluntly how she felt. And Nick doesn't know how to respond to it because he's probably used to like kind of indirect comments and hints and, you know, coy glances and all of that kind of like, you know, the the conversation that you have when you're that age. And Lyriel doesn't do any of that. And I like I assume even if she had been brought up in a place where that was the thing, she would never have, you know, gone in for it because she does seem to be somebody who prefers to be direct, prefers to be alone most of the time, as we find out later, like she's rejecting a lot of the uh, social setups that she is being put into by Elamir. Is that her name? I'm forgetting. Um, forgive me if you can hear all the doors opening and closing. Owen's home. Um, but I like to think that I know Lyriel's personality well enough to say that, that, you know, even if she had been, I I imagine her reacting not necessarily as like violent as Clariel did, but in terms of overall attitude, much the same way that Clariel did regarding being put out into society and expected to act a certain way. Um, so anyway, I just this the the way the two of them just kind of like are they're each so concerned about what the other thinks that these like very small non nothing comments get taken far too much to heart. It's a little annoying, but it's it's still charming to me. I just worry that it could grow old. Um but anyway, let's back up. So chapter 12 it's titled A Quiet Conversation, Everything's Important Left Unsaid, Flying to the Claire's Glacier. And Nicholas is waking up in the paper wing, not knowing where he is or what's happening. And I kind of had forgotten that he is absolutely passed out by the time that Lyria like sets up bringing him home. Well, she's not bringing him home. She's bringing him to the glacier. Um, but it's kind of her home. And... So he doesn't know anything that's going on. Like he wakes up and there's like wind driving at his face and his uh, he's like cold and his teeth ache, it says, which I am assuming is from the cold. Or it could be that he was like clenching his teeth. Um, he was sitting too, which was strange, particularly as he was also slumped at an angle, his head hanging down over the edge of something. He tried to sit up straight and found that as he did so, he moved out of the freezing cold wind into an area of still warm air. His dulled mind processed that he was sitting behind someone. He was tied to some sort of hammock-like suspended chair, which was in the open cockpit of an aircraft. So this is... Uh, I... I shouldn't be surprised, but... 
this is the first moment that I realized that despite everything that Nicholas has been through, a lot of it he doesn't remember. So there's some explanation there. But after what just went down with this free magic creature, I would really have thought that would have made more of an impression than it apparently has. And Nicholas keeps on second guessing things that Lyriel says or suggests because he still doesn't really believe magic is the thing that it is. Like there is a resistance. It's a skepticism or maybe he just doesn't want to overestimate. But I, I really put it more at skepticism because I don't know. I just feel like he has been told what it's like in the old kingdom and what's possible. And he just doesn't he is not giving any of that credence. And there are people who know better, who have no motivation to lie whatsoever around him. And he's still not hearing them. Later on, Lyriel is talking about, you know, like take off with the paper wing. And he's trying to be like, well, where are we going to take off from? Like she does. And I appreciated that she kind of snaps at him and says, I do know how to fly it. Like girl got down here, rescued your ass and is bringing you back up maybe you don't need to constantly express your doubt at her knowledge of what she's doing. And it's just the kind of thing that it's so, uh, it's such a dude move. It's, it's constantly be doing that. And I know he doesn't intend it to be insulting, but like genuinely you just had your life saved by this chick who knows all about creatures that you didn't even believe were real. And why are you like pointing out what you think is obvious shit to somebody who's obviously used this thing a bunch of things before these things being the paper wings? Like I just, the presumption, the audacity, I really appreciate a little bit later that the privilege he has is brought up a little bit. Not hugely, but I imagine that might be like examined a bit more. But Nicholas is clearly, he is somebody who is, he's privileged in how he was raised and who he is connected to. So societally, he's privileged in that he had money due to those connections and society. He's also privileged in that it's pretty clear he was one of the smarter people in his class and he is used to being one of the more, and this is part of what I really liked about him the first time we met him, he takes charge and is able to think quickly on his feet. And that doesn't always wind up paying paying off because there's only so much you can do. But he is not somebody who lacks logic or isn't educated. He isn't, he is ignorant, but it's coming from a very different place than where that word is usually used. And so the, he is simply not used to being in a position where he doesn't know anything about what the fuck is going on. And I think that's key here is he is always like one of the people who knows better what's happening here. He has a good head on his shoulders and now he's sort of a fish out of water and he doesn't really, he doesn't handle it super well. And I just want him to like 
shut his mouth and observe more and and try and like express doubt less. But at the same time, if he did that, there would be fewer interactions between him and, and Lyriel. So I don't know. I just, I just got so frustrated with him, you know. Uh, it says that he tapped the person ahead of him on the shoulder and he realizes that it's Lyriel. And all of a sudden he begins to remember what happened at Dorrance Hall. It was kind of crazy to me that he wakes up in this paper wing. And he was so out of it when he was put into it that he didn't even like remember any of the situation that had just gone down. I did not care for that personally. I was just like, that just felt so, it felt kind of mean spirited a little bit. Like this dude just keeps on forgetting shit, keeps going through these traumas. And for him to forget something that happened so recently, it's just, you know, it comes back to him. It does. But it says he had a dim like recollection of golden light, light all around, like waking to sunshine through a bedroom window. So bright, you can't immediately open your eyes, not until you look away. Now he had opened his eyes to find himself in a silent, far too fragile looking aircraft that presumably worked by the magic he had for, for many years, refused to recognize as being possible piloted by a young woman who he had dreamed about ever since meeting her or even before meeting her since he didn't know that his encounter with Lyriel near the Red Lake had actually happened. Um, so that is an awkward thing as well, is the fact that he has been around Lyriel before, but he doesn't necessarily remember it. And it's coming back in fits and starts. That's a real disadvantage to be at. Like, it's enough of a disadvantage in the best of times with a person that you are not particularly connected to, to realize they either know things about you or met you once before and re they remember it much more clearly than you. But if it's somebody that you've got a crush on and they don't remember or, and you remember stuff, no, wait, reverse that. You don't remember things and they do. That in particular would be really awful because you want to be impressive and you don't know if that's even possible, because you don't remember how you behaved before, and you don't know if anything you do now will be impressive enough to overcome whatever it is you might have done earlier, which you don't know about because you don't remember. And I'm just sort of like, I felt really sympathetic to him. You know, the whole thing was just sort of, uh, there were, there was a moment, there's a moment later where his clothes begin to fall apart because they're made by machine and stuff that's machine made starts to fall apart above the wall. And he is forced to borrow a cloak because he's about to be straight up naked. And she meant he realizes that he thinks she's seen him naked before. And it's so it's such a terrible moment because he remembers and there's probably a part of him that remembers and then is like hoping to be remembering wrong. And then when he says, I feel like I remember you having seen me without clothes before, she says, yes, but you were ill and very thin. And he immediately launches into like overanalyzing what she means by that. Does she mean disgusting, ugly, thin? Does she mean like, you know, I, I can never see you as a potential sexual partner again because you were so disgusting. And 
just not knowing that, you know, even if you remember really clearly that somebody saw you naked once, that's still going to give you anxiety because you don't know what their opinion was of you. But if you didn't remember until like the second that you are starting to almost be naked again, that's just going to throw you off completely. Like that just seems unfair. Um, so she tells him about how the uh, paper wing is made out of laminated paper and a great deal of charter magic. And she uses some whistling to summon wind to steer it. And Nick watches the charter marks that like come out of her mouth as she exhales after the, the whistle and is just obviously fascinated by it. There's also a sort of a guard over the top of the like cockpit that is keeping them from being hit by uh, raindrops because there's, you know, a shield there. Um, and Lyriel says it's spelled for warmth and to divide the wind, but it works only up to a point. If we go much faster, you'll feel the wind and heavy rain comes through after a fashion. I'm fairly new to this, so we're flying lower and slower than Sabriel or Touchstone would. Um, and she, when she, he asks how long she's been flying, she admits it hasn't been that long, but that she knows what she's doing and the paper wing could probably fly itself. And when she says that it's clear that Nick, it doesn't really know how to take that. And later on the paper wing winks at him. And then he, I think that gives him a better idea of just how, literally she meant those words um so here he was feeling weak and stupid tied to a kind of hammock chair in a silent flying vehicle that worked by magic with lyriel but not in circumstances where he could easily talk to her or impress her in fact he feared quite the reverse He'd helped a free magic creature escape from its prison, inadvertently begun the process of making it even more powerful, and had only been saved by Lyriel's arrival when she had immediately and competently taken care of matters. Nick shut his eyes and groaned inwardly. She probably already thought of him as a dangerous fool for his prior involvement with Aranus, a reputation he'd now enhanced or possibly dehanced, or whatever the word might be, by his freeing and empowering the cruel, once again meddling in things he didn't understand and endangering others. Honestly, we know that's not at all how she sees him, but if she did, I wouldn't even be able to be that angry at her. It, we would know it's absolutely not true, because we were with Nick when he got taken by Hedge, we saw the shard and what it did to him. It, you know, he had no control over himself and he did the best he could before getting taken by Hedge in order to save everybody else. So we are aware of what a quick thinker he is and how he really has been trying his best, even if in his magical ignorance. But, you know, Lyriel doesn't have the privilege that we do of seeing him fight these fights. So, if she came at this in a different sort of frame of mind, I would want her to be more compassionate and, and, you know, bear with him a little bit more, but I couldn't even be that, like, I, I couldn't hold it against her, you know? Um, so she tells him that they're going to the glacier. Um, 
and this is when he says that he didn't want to believe any of Sam's stories. And he says that he was feels like an idiot for refusing to acknowledge what was in front of his face last time he was here. And Lyriel says, it wasn't your fault. You had the shard of Oranus in your heart controlling you. And Nick didn't know that it was in his heart. And that comes as a bit of a shock. And I am a little mad that Sam didn't tell him. Um, and he says, surely it would have killed me when it came out. And Lyriel says, no, it traveled through your bloodstream, reversing the course it must have taken to go in and then burst from your finger to rejoin the hemispheres. Nick lifted his hand and looked at his forefinger. There was a star-shaped scar there above the top joint, and it was always somewhat numb, though he could feel a pinprick or other sharp pain. He had wondered what caused that numbness and the scar. Sam should have told me, he said quietly. I suppose he thought it would be too upsetting. Yeah, I have to agree here. I mean, whether it would be upsetting or not, it's a it's a twofold thing. Sam should have told Nick, but also I find it odd that Nick didn't ask. Like he had wondered what caused that numbness and the scar. I feel like I would be taking note of things like that after a period where I don't remember a huge chunk of time. And I would be asking anybody I could if they had theories or knowledge about why a certain thing was happening. Because, you know, there it's not like he just acquired some scar at some point in his life from childhood and he doesn't necessarily remember how he got it. This is a scar that he got during a very specific period where he doesn't have memory, but his friends do. So it surprises me a little bit that Nick hasn't asked more questions. Um, and so the fact that he's hearing this all for the first time, that Lyriel's sort of, I don't want to say she's being like cavalier about it, because that's not it at all. She's certainly not a cavalier person, but she's telling him in a sort of way that lacks tact a bit or empathy because she clearly had thought he knew already it's just tough you know um so nick says but why are you taking me to the glacier thank you for dealing with that thing and i'm grateful um i wouldn't want any more people to suffer from my stupidity which seemed likely but and he sort of stops and realizes that like he's sort of babbling. He doesn't know where, which end of the conversation to start from. Um, and it says, he never had any problems talking nonsense to the Debs, which I assume is debutantes, at the balls in Corvair or pretending academic conversations with the blue stockings at Sun Sunbeer, or even taking part in intelligent discourse with the students who saw through his act. Everyone said he was charming. It couldn't all be to do with his powerful and influential family, which meant nothing here. Could it? That is the thing. If you are somebody who is in a position that someone else could potentially leverage, they have no motivation to be honest with you. They, If they see you as a potential stepping stone, why would they bother? So I really like this moment of him sort of wondering, like, Everybody says I'm charming, and I've always accepted that as true. And now I'm realizing that maybe that's not. 
And it's a real moment of growth, I think. And also, there's nothing quite like the realization that something that you have always like taken for granted as true about yourself is based purely on what other people have told you. It's like, one can say, if you are dealing with people in a social situation, like say at parties in the way that this is described, that you can judge whether or not you're having a good effect on somebody by their reactions. And you can judge if they are impressed by you and charmed by you. But if people if you are of a certain caliber, people are going to put on an act. So that's not necessarily trustworthy either. And so, yeah, he all he has to go on, re whether he is charming, is everyone telling him that he is, which, uh, yikes, you know, that's really nothing. Um, so... Lirial says, I'm curious how you ended up at the wall with the rule. She didn't sound at ease either, Nick thought miserably. He was probably just a task she had to take care of, part of her duty as the abhorsen in waiting, though he was very glad it was she who'd come along, not Sabriel. He was intimidated by Sabriel, though she had always been perfectly nice to him on the rare occasion she'd visited Sam at school. So he explains to her about everything that happened at Dorrance Hall and then ends it with, so now you know about my latest idiocy. Why are you taking me to the Claire's Glacier? And I really wish so much that Lirial would reassure him that it's not his idiocy. Like he did the best he could. And I think she knows that. But I don't believe that she assigns the significance to him saying that. That she should because she realizes I don't think she realizes that he, when he says my latest idiocy, that's not just him being self-deprecating and, and kind of trying to hand wave a thing. He is saying that in order to attempt to indicate to her that he is aware he fucked up real bad and she isn't telling him, no, 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 you didn't fuck up. You did the best you could. Because she doesn't realize how much he means it when he uses that word. And I just, ugh, I, I've had these conversations. Um, so she basically admits to him that she doesn't exactly even know what she expects the Claire to do. She tells him, I think there's still free magic in you. And uh, the disreputable dog baptized you with the charter mark. So you have this weird mixture which is very unusual and then says the best place to have such things. I mean, situations or circumstances. And I love this because she says things and then she realizes she kind of called him a thing and then she wants to undo that. Um, and she explains to him basically that there are libraries at the glacier that she can utilize to try and figure out exactly what's going on. And she is blushing as she's talking because she's like, fucking up herself and he thinks to himself it was worse than he thought not only had he caused trouble he was trouble and Lyriel was embarrassed to have to tell him so so you know I, I again it's a it's a misunderstanding but it's done in such a way I really appreciate this 
you guys know how fucking little tolerance I have for misunderstandings in media, like being used as a plot device. It is incredibly irritating so much of the time. Like it's just this sort of crutch that can be used and be done really clumsily. And if you had told me that there would be like a misunderstanding between Nick and and Lyriel about whether they liked each other, I might have really rolled my eyes about that and not really been here for it. But when we actually hear their conversation and the the way that they are each reacting to one another, it feels completely justified that each of them thinks what they think about the other and the other's opinion of them. It just, you know, there are so many times that I've read scenes like this done badly and somebody will take a comment that was clearly meant as like an, uh, a compliment the wrong way in a way that makes no sense in context that they would ever take it that way, but they need to be offended for this plot point to work. So we're going to just force this or somebody will have a reaction to something um, or say or phrase something in a way that they would never actually say that just so that the other person can misunderstand what it is they actually meant. And this is this feels so much more legit. This is a conversation that they're each muddling through trying to do their best. And, you know, her blushing here, we know why that's happening. And his interpretation of it is incorrect. But if he's coming at this from the perspective he is where he thinks that she's like kind of over him, it makes sense that he sees this as her being like, feeling awkward at having to tell him. And then later on, he has to pee and like ask her to land. And it's this awful moment of him saying nature calls and her not knowing what that means. Oh, God, it's really something. Um, She mentions that the sh- traveling in a paper wing and flying this way is much more comfortable than flying an owl shape. And this makes him remember that he like associates an owl with Lyriel in his mind at times. And he never thought about it, that actually being a literal connection. But later on, when he mentions it to her, she confirms that and mentions the disreputable dog again. Um, Nick also points out her hand and he's doing so in an effort to just make conversation. And it doesn't, she doesn't, she's kind of like self-conscious about it, I think. Um, and, he feels like an idiot because he feels like he should have known that she wasn't going to want to talk about something that was so closely associated with like really painful traumatic memories. So they, uh, this is when they fly in silence for a while and then he realizes he has to pee. Um, and then he is walking away in order to use the bathroom And his clothes begin to fall apart, which is super funny to me. I love it so much. Like, what a weird detail, but I really like it. Um, So we go to chapter 13. And I've kind of talked a lot about what's going on with the two. So I'm going to go be like less detailed. But uh, we'll get to the glacier in a bit. So we go back to Farron. And they basically, they bring her to a charter stone and um, they have a doctor come and look at her. And I don't think I'm wondering on it. 
whether I feel like this guy's name is a little bit familiar, but I'm trying to find it when he comes up and like introduces himself. Um, oh, here it is. Um, a, a hawk's oh no, the hawk arrives first. Um, as it perched on the stone, charter marks shimmered up and wrapped themselves around the bird's feet and talons. The hawk launched itself into the sky again, the marks falling back into the stone. Message hawk, says, said Huir. Um, Astilaran, that's the healer who's coming to sort you out. He says that in the old days, I mean the real old days, the charter mages could make messenger birds just with magic. They didn't need an egg to start with or to train up a real bird. And it's funny that she's telling this to Farron, thinking that Farron's going to be really impressed with this, like, uh, n- like not even needing to actually raise a a real bird but Farron has never heard of messenger hawks to begin with um so she's already impressed and we hear about the raids that would be you know enacted on other clans and how she was never allowed to go because she was so valuable being set aside for the witch with no face um so anyway, so yeah, I forgot Astilaran. I don't think his name like rang a little bit of a bell. And so I kind of thought that we had maybe met him. But now that I'm looking at it, I don't think so. Um, so he comes over to her and is able to immediately tell that it's like a crossbow bolt. He hears that like spells were attempted that slid right off her. He asks her if she has any charms or talismans on her that might be interfering. And she says no. But later on, we find out that there is like a kind of knife carving on her stomach. Um, Or no, it's a brand. I think it's done with like a hot knife. So it's like a combo. But that is the thing that seems to be throwing off their magic. And Charter magic can be used to remove it or the person who placed it there can remove it. But just trying to like cut it off her is not an option, which is what she immediately tries. And I have to say, I really like my respect for Farron grew a little bit when her immediate response to hearing that maybe the symbol was what was interfering. Her response is to pull a knife and begin to like try and dig into her own skin. Like this chick is fucking tough as nails and there's a mention several times of how her people see pain as something not to be displayed and to be, uh, she calls it pain is a challenge to be met and overcome. So yeah. Um, let's see. Did you, I, I really like the descriptions of the charter marks and the way that they work. Um, they because he tries to use like a chain of them and they sort of just fall away and disappear then he uses like his hand to summon a bunch of marks from the charter stone and the the um way that the charter symbols move is described at one point as kind of the way that leaves move in a breeze which i have to say was very evocative for me. I feel like I had been picturing them floating in this sort of steady way, but describing them as almost reacting to physical surroundings, but not necessarily. They might be like moving on a a breath of a spell, you know, or somebody's actual physical breath when they said the spell or something. Um, I just said that brought it into a different light for me. And I just felt like I could suddenly picture it much more 
vividly in my mind after that. Um, so Farron, tr- he, he tries to heal her and it, she like is, gets this lance of pain through her stomach and passes out and he tries again and the same thing happens. And, uh, it says, Astilleran spoke a word and a particularly bright charter mark appeared in the air above her leg and began to slowly turn as it did so, sending out a shower of small, cool sparks of brilliant light. Other marks joined this one coming out of Astilleran's mouth. And then he suddenly brought his right hand down on Farron's ankle and the super bright charter mark and all the others with it that had come from the stone flowed from his hand into her leg with a flash of flash, like sudden close lightning out of a clear sky. Um, so yeah, he explains, he, he's pointing out this like marking, um, and says, this is the trouble. He seemed very tired. Yeah. He's tried magic, serious magic a couple times and it's not working. He's probably used up a lot of energy. Um, he says a free magic charm of some kind, a very strong one, perhaps even something necromantic. There is a hint of death. And she says that it was the witch with no face. So that makes sense. Um, and he says that, you know, he, he used a spell to break through the free magic talisman that will make her feel stronger than she actually is. So she needs to be careful because she's going to feel like she's capable of walking and doing things that she isn't actually, because essentially what he did was give her a painkiller and there's the danger of overdoing it because you're, you know, dulled to your body, to your body's signals, letting you know that you've gone too far. Um, so yeah, he, when she says that she's going to cut it out, he's like, no, no, no. Um, there are many people at the Claire that can remove a horrid thing. And I like that he says that. And she kind of like, it's the first time that I think she's run into any resulting problems from this, this symbol clearly, but I didn't love that. And I'm curious about it. Um, what you guys will think. And I'll, this sort of happens a little bit later, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Um, She talks to him later about how her people don't really have creative magic, that they only have spells to do destruction and evil. And that those who are healers and whatnot do not actually have magic. They have tinctures and herbs and stuff like that. And it bothered me a little simply because Farron is meant to be, I I am assuming from her description, a woman of color coming from a less advanced civilization and to have it be like the magic of her people is only destructive feels like there's a bit of a, oh, she's learning from the very like European styled wizards in a way that feels a bit patronizing, but I don't know if I'm reading into that too much. Uh, it was just the kind of thing that when she said that a bit of me kind of went, ah, come on, you know, but there are times where something will rub me the wrong way. And then later I'll be like, uh, I was really overreacting to that. So I don't know. Um, so, (laughs) 
when when Nick goes and uses the bathroom, gets the cloak and everything, she gives him a bag with uh, bread and cheese and a water bottle. Um, and I love just how awkward everything is between the two of them. My God. Uh, she is thinking to herself, Lyriel is, about how she doesn't know anything about how to initiate a relationship like this because she just didn't have this going on for her when she was a member of the Claire. Like everybody else was, they eventually got the site and they joined the rest of the community and there was very little for them to worry about because they were living normal lives and weren't constantly preoccupied with being somebody other and different. And Lyriel never felt at ease or like she was part of things. So she didn't indulge in the same relationships that other people did because she felt so isolated. So she just has no practice at this. Um, and I love that it says her office as a person in waiting had proved quite a shield in social situations against the people who Elamir was always trying to get her to meet and do things with. She need only say that she had a porcelain business and they left her alone. Um, she had no experience with how men and women could get together and become friends, let alone lovers, and not much more with how women and women could get together, as some of the Claire did, or mixing and matching, as even more of the Claire considered perfectly straightforward and usual. It always seemed easy when everyone else did it. Lyriel frowned as she thought of various cousins pairing up with each other, and I'm just like, hmm... Okay. I mean, you know, there was a period where that was the thing that just happened. So I guess. Um, Lyriel really didn't know how they went about these activities. She had been a loner all her life. One who had the great fortune to make one wonderful friend in the disreputable dog. Literally in this case, since she had somehow summoned the dog or helped her into existence. But the dog was gone. So... It's a, and it, she thinks about the fact that she has family, but it's not really like they, they, <laughs> I really like this actually. They were all a very work obsessed family, or maybe that should be responsibility obsessed. She was too, she supposed. But when there weren't dead creatures to battle or free magic entities to be bound or some immediate problem to face, only the ordinary social interaction of normal people, she didn't know what to do. Even Elamir, who seemed to be able to make any social situation work exactly as she wanted it to, hadn't been able to fit Lyriel into any groups of friends or introduce her to potential lovers. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of like that Elamir keeps being mentioned. I want to see more from her. I really do. Um, so <laughs> Nick is, <laughs> this is so funny. Lyriel saw Nick trying to tie the belt from his shredded trousers around the cloak he now wore to keep it together and not suddenly part in ways unbecoming to his modesty. Um, and he mentions that like his shoes are handmade and his belt is handmade, but the shoelaces were machine made. So they fall apart as well. And she tells him that he, they can get clothes at the glacier. And he's like, but there's only women there. So what will I wear? 
To which she's like, well, we all wear basically the same clothes. And it becomes pretty clear that like the differences in clothing between the sexes are very, are much more pronounced where he's from than when they're, where they're going. Um, and let's see. Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, you will be quite safe within the glacier. I mean, as long as you stay out of the library and places like that. And he makes a joke about fierce librarians uh, tell you to shush and that sort of thing. And she doesn't know what shush means, but they get into like a little thing where he's like uh, talking about librarians telling you to be quiet and that he doesn't really like librarians because he's thinking of the one that he knew who was kind of a crank. And she says that she used to be a librarian. And it hurts her feelings a lot more than it should. He's just trying to make a small talk and trying to be cute and make jokes. And she gets really, it be, she was quite deeply wounded. Become a, becoming a librarian had saved her life, in many ways giving her an identity she had lacked when she was a sightless Claire. It hurt to hear Nick talk disdainfully about librarians, almost as if he were talking about her. Get over it. Honestly, I don't have any patience for this. Um, and Lyriel is so irritated by this that even though she's really hungry and he offers her some food, she's like, no, thank you. Well, just I can eat while we fly. And he's like, OK. And that's when the paper wing winks at him and he drops the bag. The bread and cheese tumble out and fall into like the sand and become totally inedible. And it's just very embarrassing. <laughs> the whole thing is just so embarrassing. Um, so then we go back to Yellow Sands and we have like everybody escaping from this village. And when I said on the uh, intro that it was more tense than one would expect, like what I mean by this is that the urgency of everybody bailing I didn't think that we were going to be a part of that. I thought that we were going to show up, tell everybody, you need to get the fuck gone. And then we were going to like move on ahead out, out on our own, breaking free to go deliver this message as quickly as possible. I don't know how I pictured that happening. If I thought that they were going to like take horses, I think that I keep imagining that they have the same sorts of like equipment available as Lyriel and they could just hop in a paper wing. That is not a thing here. Um, but I just, I thought that we were going to have to leave these people behind. And instead we have to stay with them and, and help them escape. Um, and because of that, it feels much the the stakes are higher. You know, there's just, there are so many potential casualties with them. And I just, I don't know, I felt a way about it. So one of the, uh, Farron tells the captain, this won't work. The Woodweirds can run as fast as a cantering horse and we have too short a start. They'll catch us in the open. I know, said Carol heavily. 
I'd planned to get north where the road turns south. There's an old watchtower built over the estuary there for defense against the dead. It is large enough to shelter us all and is high and strong. We could make a good stand there, but as you say, we go too slowly. And Farron tries to be like, why don't I just break away from you guys? They're going to come after me. Oh, I should also mention that Farron figures out that the mark on her stomach is probably how they're tracking her, which really blows. Like, I, I, it didn't even occur to me that they had like a magical means. I assumed that they had found out she was picked up by the fisher folk because of the like, you know, black smoke that was going up from her weird uh free magic fire that they spotted that and then they saw some random fishing boat stop and help her and they pursue the fishing boat i assumed a lot about the way that they were following and it seems more like she's just got a fucking gps chip embedded in her skin and that just really feels unfair i don't care for that um but yeah she says that she can break away and they'll pursue her because this is she's what this is all about but karilke is like no, dude, you're our guest. So if you break off to like pull them away from us, it will be as if we gave you over to them. Um, and let's see, I'm trying to find the spot. If we go that way, I'm sure they will follow. Wood weirds do not go well along narrow ways or on uncertain ground. There is much loose shale I can see from here. And even a wood weird cannot survive a great fall. Um, so yeah, they have this, like of uh, this knife's edge ridge that they can climb over that will be, uh, a little bit easier for them to maybe outpace the wood weirds. Um, so Swinther, who is this, uh, new, uh, addition to the crew says that he can be the guide. Um, Swinther is Kirilke's husband, BT dubs. Uh, he says the last is right. They'll speed up when the first few at the rear are slain, but it won't make a difference. Not if these things are as fast as you say, I'll show the way. And there's this thing between Swinther and Tolther where Tolther wants to like be involved because Tolther doesn't understand. And I like earlier his sister, um, she is like lamenting the fact that Tolther clearly wants to be part of the fight because he is a kid and doesn't understand still what it means to really be part of the fight. And I am extremely curious if we're going to get to see him come around on that a little bit and realize that like, it's not as fun and full of glory as he may expect, but we'll see. Um, so let's see do, do, do. they oh right they call down this middle-aged woman um to shoot back and kind of keep up the rear and uh she has this like long bow and i really love this because when i think it's um farin that asks her like how far they can shoot farin when they respond farin is kind of like Oh shit, really? Like, because they just have better bows. They have better equipment. Um, so the healer comes running up to Farron at one point and is irritated with the fact that she is not resting the way that she is supposed to. Uh, your foot is no better 
My spell is merely holding back the pain and assisting your body to heal itself, which it cannot do if you test yourself beyond enduring. I cannot rest, said Farron. The pursuit will soon begin in earnest, and I must lead the Woodweirds away from your people. Um, and she says, I'll take the ridge path. They will follow me. You others will go on to take refuge in the tower. And Astilleran is like, man, I just barely got that fucking spell working on you. And if you do this, it's going to stress everything and probably break the spell. Um, and Karilke has to be like, the Woodweirds can run as fast as horses, dude. Like, we kind of don't have a lot of choice here. So he finally caves. He's think he says something about how he thinks he could handle one or two Woodweirds. And Farron is like, dude, there are 12. Maybe there are more. We know of 12. This is going to be too risky. Um, and so when she says like, and they might fall if I lead them down this path, he's like, they might fall. You're the one with a fucking injury. You might fall. Are you kidding me? Um, if you can shoot even some of them or their keepers, it will help. Um, I have charter spelled arrows ready imbued with marks to cut, unravel, and flence. I'm actually going to Google flence because I don't think that I know that word. Uh, slice the skin or fat from a carcass, especially that of a whale. The skin had been flensed off. Ooh, I never knew that word. Noted. Um, so I feel like this ends before things like they get this all set up, right? Yeah. And then we go into chapter 16, which is the landing at the glacier. Um, and it's so weird because like there are no guards when they land, it's clear that Lyriel thinks there's going to be somebody there to speak to pretty quickly. And that there is this like um, doorway that I think was expected to be open and isn't. Um, and I love too that when she explains to Nick where they're going to land before they get there, he is certain that they're either going to crash or it's going to be like a huge jolt and really uncomfortable. And he closes his eyes like in an attempt to sort of be cool and not like, you know, get too afraid and piss his pants. But then land, they land so softly that he opens his eyes, not really like aware that they had even landed yet and realizes they have. And it's just like, Oh shit. And this is when he says, I wanted to thank you for coming to get me. I wanted to said Lyriel almost without thinking and blushed at this honesty. Good said Nick. I'm, I'm happy you did that. It was you. Both were suddenly very aware of their closeness in the cockpit. For a few seconds, they were suspended together somewhere else, a kind of shared space and time, suddenly gone as the paper wing tilted and began to climb. I really like that moment because there is a sort of like, when you realize that you and another person are having a conversation with a level to it that you didn't notice a second ago, it will feel like everything else dropped away for a second. So yeah, I really rather like the way that that was done. Um, so Lyriel, yeah, here it is. The star Mount gate. I'd have thought it would be open and someone here to meet us. They always see visitors at least a few hours ahead of time, if not days before. 
So yeah, she had thought that there would be somebody there and she tells him to wait. And he waits for a while. It's like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. And then he begins to get pretty irritated and lonely. And he's very tired and super hungry. And he decides that he is going to get out and try and, you know, find a way inside, I guess. I don't know why he thinks that he's going to be able to manage this. But this dude is still like suffering the exhaustion from what he had, you know, what what he went through with this monster and also just blood loss. He isn't wearing any fucking clothes for another. And she specifically mentions that if he stays in the paper wing, there's like a shield on it that'll keep him warm. And again, I would like to remind you that this mountaintop is covered in snow and he is naked. So this idiot decides to climb out of his nice warm cocoon for no fucking reason. And as he heads towards where she disappeared, a charter magic like construct appears. Like it's clear that he sort of tripped an alarm. This huge worm uh, sending appears. It says easily 70 feet long and 12 feet in diameter with a mouth of that same disturbingly wide diameter occupying all of the end closest to him. A mouth completely ringed with six serried layers of different sized teeth from enormous grinding molars at the back to tiny delicate flesh rending pointy ones at the front. Thousands of teeth each the size and shape of a murderous small knife. Oh, poor Nick. And like, it's so funny when Lyriel comes out later and she, you know, it's ascending. She knows that these things aren't real. And while they are dangerous, if they're attacking you, it doesn't like it's something that she is familiar with overall. And she's just not impressed by it. Meanwhile, Nick is like, he can't take his eyes off the thing. It makes him super nervous. It's really kind of fun to see how I have to say Nick is just at such a disadvantage in these chapters between literally not knowing anything, having no clothing. It's kind of nice. Like it's pretty rare for a dude to be in this position in stories. And I'm honestly kind of here for it. Um, So he gets snuck up on by these other two women and Lyriel is the one that comes out and has to like deal with them because they apparently there was somebody who could see that they were going to be there or came out for a patrol I don't know how they like knew that he was there but nobody was available to greet them when Lyriel arrived um I love this so much Lower your sword at once. This is Lyriel when she runs back out. Who are you? Asked the swordswoman. She did not lower her sword, and the archer with her transferred her aim to Lyriel. The abhorsen in waiting, as you can see very well from my surcoat bells and the royal paper wing right in front of your eyes, Caliset. And Caliset, who is the archer, is like, oh my god, are you serious? And clearly, like, doesn't recognize her. Apparently, they did not, like, see her coming. Um, Caliset mumbled something about having gotten taller. Well, where is everybody? Asked Lyriel. Lower your bow before you have an accident. Jalesre, isn't it? I didn't know you were in the Rangers. 
I just joined three months ago. I'm sorry, Liriel, said Calisette stiffly. I was just surprised. I've never heard you talk so much. You never did before. We used to call you Chatterbox, remember? No, said Liriel. There is something super funny to me about the fact that she, th this woman's trying to be like, oh, we called you such and such. And Liriel's like, you did. I don't know why, but you know, whenever somebody says something like that, you expect the person it's about to have like been somehow deeply affected by it. And yes, I remember you all making fun of me or yes, I remember feeling bad about the fact that I didn't talk to you more. And I like that. She's just like, no, I didn't remember. Did you? Oh, hmm. Um, and I really like, too, that when Calisette, like, when Liriel says, no, I don't, did you? Calisette starts to be like, yeah, and then stops and is like, well, some people did. And it seems like she's sort of beginning to see Liriel with new eyes and realizing that maybe she shouldn't, like, be disrespectful to her because of the position that Liriel has. Um, so, yeah, this is when she introduces Nick as a prince and he has to correct her. Um, at one point, the, they realize that this worm is reacting to Nick because of the fact that he has this free magic in him. And I loved how he says, or maybe it just doesn't like my face. And he's just trying to make a joke. And Lyriel is like, it doesn't have eyes, Nick. Like he's an idiot. Nick likes jokes too much f to be with somebody like Lyriel who reacts this way. I really hope that she starts to understand what jokes are pretty soon um but yeah Lyra, and basically Caliset is like look this guardian doesn't want to let him in and we are not able to do it if this thing says no um we can't let your guest in even if he's a prince and i presume more rangers will be on their way from the other uh posts on the mountains uh and from inside so we can expect Morel or some other officer who can send the guardian back to rest fairly soon. Maybe just a lieutenant, said, Callis, said Caliset. The expression on her face suggested that she hoped it was not the commander herself who would show up. Um, and I am curious about what everyone is going to make of the fact that one of these guardians straight up d didn't want to let Nick in. Um, Quil and they mentioned Quilla is the closest on duty up here. Quilla got made lieutenant of the Rangers? Acting lieutenant, said Caliset, then shut her mouth as if she had said too much, which I'm like, yeah, what's that about acting lieutenant? What's going on here, guys? Um, let's see, here it is. Yeah, drill grubs are blind. They, they don't, you can see it has no eyes. Yes, mumbled Nick, teeth chattering. He felt even more miserable now. How s silly of me. Because he's like shivering because he's only wearing a cloak and they're standing in the snow. And that is the end of that section. So yeah, it's kind of an amusing ending. A kind of a funny spot to stop on, but I rather liked it. Um, all right. Well, guys, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you again to Yama for commissioning this episode. I hope you guys are enjoying the coverage. I'm enjoying this book quite a bit. And we will see you next week with a new episode. Until then, toodaloo, motherfuckers.
was an unspoiled network podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.